Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. I don't know how to intro these episodes. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like the just jump in and start talking approach. I think you were mentioning off mic, you just mm-hmm. started listening to the recent episode of uh, the Andrew Huberman podcast. Yeah, so I've been listening to, I guess, the episode that he, the latest episode that he releases as of the time of this recording, which is basically, he's talking about dopamine and how dopamine actually functions in our lives. And what it brought up to me is the way that we think we're going to make something feel good, like a productive activity by, you know, pumping ourselves up with caffeine and music and, you know, meditation and all this stuff and like doing all these things before your quote unquote productive activity so that you're, in other words, having attempting to increase your consistency and your desire to go after that thing. And one thing that he was talking about is how your dope, the way that it functions, it actually has uh, a baseline that by doing these pleasurable experiences and activities, like for instance, like eating chocolate or having sex or having nicotine, any of these like experiences that increase dopamine, what they do is they raise your baseline. And then when you do something that feels really good after that, you have this spike, but then you have an even bigger drop off of that activity. So you're not necessarily making it more likely that you're going to go after that thing And what you're actually doing is you're just raising your baseline. So you're making things feel less and less pleasurable the more you do them. It's like discipline in a sense where it's like, hey, do this thing when you're uncomfortable doing it. It's like that. That's like that whole that line of thinking around like being disciplined. And it's not about these other things. It's just about getting to it and getting it done. Even when you're uncomfortable, based on what you're saying, you can say you're when you're uncomfortable your your dopamine's at a lower level. So if you can actually engage in the activity, that reward feedback is much more powerful. Yeah. Is that what he's alluding to? Yeah, he that's essentially what he's alluding to because he's saying the function of dopamine, the way that it was in the early evolution of humans, is basically you look around wherever you're living and you notice that, hey, we don't have a lot of water or we don't really, we're running out of food. So the look or the noticing that there there are things missing in essence, is what kind of like starts to bring that dopamine up and make you want to go look for things. And if your dopamine always stayed up, you wouldn't continually go look for things. You wouldn't have the desire or the urge where your effort would actually feel good. So he he talks about a variety of topics around that. One of them is that by increasing the baseline of your dopamine, by doing a bunch of things that always feel good all the time, you're actually making life less pleasurable because the contrast between your experiences, you have to raise the bar higher and higher. And this is what happens in addiction when that basically is pointed at one thing versus a variety of things. But even if you're pointing it at a variety of things and doing all these like high dopamine inducing states, what they'll do is they'll keep raising the baseline in essence. Yeah, it's, and uh, so, it's Eddie Murphy starring himself for so long that a, a saltine cracker... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is a great saltine cracker. Yeah, yeah that, that's a perfect example of it. And, yeah, I get it. And also, uh, one thing that he mentions is that when you do achieve the big thing, the higher your level of celebration or the more emotion you put into the peak of that experience, the bigger the drop is going to be. So let's say you cross the finish line of a marathon. One is This is one example he gives. And you like have this like huge celebration. Your dip the next day is going to be more significant than if you cross it almost calmly. (laughs) Does he talk about 
there's like a lingering stoic energy in what you just said. But yeah, does bit. he talk about uh, the measurability of this? Because someone could infer, mm-hmm. and maybe th- that is the point. But like my takeaway from when you said is, be miserable, and then moderately. In- be happy when you do something that you want to do. <laughs> Sound like how I want to live my life. Right. I don't think that's necessarily what he's inferring. And I know that I know for a fact that I'm not explaining it nearly as sophisticated as right, he is right. or in a way that you can even start to apply it. No, but I think it makes sense <laughs> though, because I think I I had this moment mm-hmm. just yesterday that I think applies here. Um, what you started off by saying when you're doing these rituals in the morning mm-hmm. to increase yourself, to like do like engage in your activity. I think there's some nuance there that applies to, I think the sentiment he's trying to get across, which is we recommend doing these rituals, right? Do some meditation, some breathing, mm-hmm. some journaling. We recommend them to help bring you from a lower state mm-hmm. into a state where you can engage in your work. Yes. Um, But I think what happened to me today is I woke up this morning And I didn't do those things, or I think it was yesterday. I didn't do those things. I just started doing work. Mm -hmm. That I only did that because I felt really good already, and I felt excited to do the work. So I was just like, oh, let me just start doing work. And I think that is the key in what he's saying. I think if you're maybe chemically very low, let's say you're someone who Mm -hmm. has mild depression or is just not in a good mood and a funk, these things can help you get back to your original baseline. Yes, yeah, you like if work. you're below baseline. But if you're, if you're already operating at baseline and you feel good, you can forgive yourself by skipping some of those activities every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So you can just start doing the work that you want to do. Yeah, the, what's interesting about what you're saying is he what he did, like I'm, I'm not done with the podcast episode yet. I was just listening to it as I was walking earlier. Poe is Vic's dog. Yeah, I've me- mentioned Poe a few times, but uh, yeah, Poe is the true Zen master in this house. <laughs> so anyway, I was walking Poe, I was listening to this podcast, and I just got to the part where he talks about like the like the methods or the how-to of how you can actually use your dopamine to like moderate your motivation or like at least make it more consistent. And the part that I basically left off on, and you'll have to go listen to this yourself, so I'll put the link in the show notes, but he's basically talking about intermittent like dopamine loading type of thing. Like not if you have this ritual that every time you need to go work out, like he gives the example is you take your pre-workout, you put on your favorite music, you put on your, you know, favorite gym outfit kind of thing. Like you, you've stacked all these things to make you feel good. But if you do it every single time like that, not only do each of those individual things start to lose their, their shine to you or their appeal, but You've also made the whole entry point into working out this difficult undertaking that requires all these different moving pieces. So you're making it harder to get into the activity because now you're starting to think that it requires these five things rather than just go work out. So what he's saying is like you should do it sometimes, not all the time. And that's the part where I left there's off. A, there's a group online that started building momentum where they'll do communal dopamine de- detox mm-hmm. yeah where, i've heard of those before. right where you'll choose your your highest or lowest hanging fruit in terms of like dopamine hijacking things mm-hmm. like your cell phone things like social media but it can be even things in in irl and just don't do them starting with a, a day mm-hmm. then a weekend or a week mm-hmm. and be very intentional about 
when you're giving up those things for the reason that I think Andrew is describing in that podcast episode. Yeah, and one one thing he did rec- he did talk about those dopamine detoxes and like how this guy who they thought he had major ADHD what they did or what the dude ended up doing is he just he took social media off of his phone and stopped using his phone for anything other than like calling people basically for a period of 14 to 30 days or something like that. And his focus increased significantly. He was able to, his mood increased. He just, he felt better and he was actually able to focus. And one of the reasons being is because of that contrast. He like, he brought his baseline down back down to a normal level, not a significantly stimulated level, which like social media, like in the beginning of it, he's talking about how social media it, it has this effect where it's so quick in the context switch of new things that you're like, it's something that human beings have never experienced is like the context change at that rate, because normally you have to go into a different room or go outside or to like a different part of town to have a context switch. But now you can just do it on your phone and it like it messes with you. Yeah, I think it's huge, right? Because similar was said about the invention of the television but if you take the leap from a television which is like these hourly or 30 minute programs Mm -hmm. that they transition there's like a story there but if you look at social media we're speaking we're talking about updates that are quicker than our brain can even process yeah and multi-dimensional right you your feed could update simultaneously you can get a dm simultaneously you somebody can go and post a new story that's expiring or simultaneously somebody can go like all those things could happen within one five inch screen mm-hmm. yeah and like, <laughs> like and it's in your pocket you could access it at any moment so you, if you're feeling down or you're feeling you know anxious of, in any way you could just pull out the phone and start doom scrolling and it's hitting those like it's giving you those hits of dopamine at a ridiculous rate. So it's interesting because if we obviously, if you're listening to this, Lewis and I are not experts on the science here necessarily, but if we bring this back to like philosophical context, a lot of what this is in going to have these big dopamine experiences when you feel down or you feel low, it's really the process of ha- having an intention of expediency of trying to move from the bad feeling to the good feeling as quick as possible by whatever means necessary. And there's so many different things that can give you that. It could be food, it could be social media, it could be TV, uh, it could really and truly be anything that gets rid of that feeling. It's also a delusion of control, which may sound unintuitive because you're picking up your phone and checking it, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a delusion of control because you have no control over when the next hit is coming in. You're outsourcing your emotional stability. Mm -hmm. You're like, your your dopamine itself you're outsourcing that to Instagram mm-hmm. and they can control the frequency in which you'll get a hit, how you get a hit, what you see, when you see it at a low, at very low effort to you. Right. So you feel like, oh, this is my phone. This is my app. This is my account. I control this. But they've been able to understand the human experience so intimately that they can actually nudge you and control you in any way that you want, even though you think you're still in control. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because I know before we were talking about the Andrew Huberman podcast, we were talking about how like social media 
can predict your behavior and what you're going to look at before you even know what you're going to be thinking of. So like those moments where you're like, I was talking about these shoes with my friend and all of a sudden I saw an ad for these shoes. Oh, they're spying on me. There's that sneaking suspicion, which you you and I were saying like, yeah, that's totally possible. But it's like, I'll never throw a life reserve at big tech. Mm -hmm. I'm in the tech industry is likely that they are doing something malicious with your data and doing things that are inappropriate for sure. Mm -hmm. What's also just as likely or even more likely is they're extremely sophisticated um, and they have the most brilliant people in the world interpreting mass volumes of data that gives them an increased amount of statistical certainty in any decision they make. Mm -hmm. So somehow your unconscious brought you to a determination and they have hooked their data collecting teeth in so many parts of your online footprint that they can infer that same unconscious conclusion for you by themselves. Yeah. Which that that it's kind of frightening, to be honest with you. <laughs> it is because it, if you think about outsourcing your attention to things that you can't control, like the news feed of social media, the ads that might you know come your way, if you start to put your attention on those things that you can't control, in other words, if you start to lean on the side of the dichotomy of control of the stuff that you can't, because you're looking for an expedient move from feeling anxious to feeling soothed or pacified by that, then you're, again, locking your attention into the uncontrollable, which is basically allowing the outside environment to control your emotions and your impulses and what directions you might go in. And I even think there's an interesting conversation that we should do at some future point. Mm -hmm. Um, or you can do a dedicated episode on everything that you're saying is true, right? Like at the abstract about what's happening chemically to like the realities of a social media can be pervasive. It's also a new phenomenon and it would be unrealistic to expect people to just say, I'm going to not participate in it. So there's a management aspect here. There's there's this tug of war that we would like people to be on the winning side of because it's more healthy for them. Mm -hmm. I think there's a conversation there on like, how do you approach it both as a user? But even I'd be interested, like Vic, to hear how you think we should approach it as entrepreneurs. Like, how do you, you don't have a successful business without a digital footprint. Mm -hmm. Or it's very rare. So, like, how do you both simultaneously say Twitter is addicting and bad for you, but also I need to participate in discourse on Twitter in order to get the awareness to help people the way that we want to help people? So there's there's a deeper conversation there of, like, mm -hmm. how do you manage these things that I think is worth having? Yeah, I think at least, like, the way that I'm currently using for myself, because despite studying Zen and stoicism for years and being in the personal development world, learning all that stuff, I was still very much, much subject to doom scrolling to like getting on my phone, reacting to stuff that I see. And at least what I've started to do with that is I use the, the four intentions and four delusions a lot. And I use it a lot for myself to be able to like, like work through problems, but I also use it a lot to think of it in many different contexts. And one of the things that I'll always ask myself if I have an emotional reaction to something is I'll stop and I start to train myself to ask, what is my intention here? Where does it fall? 
within these delusions and intentions. And one example of like how I make that determination is I use my emotions as a compass, not in a way of because I'm feeling this now I make this decision. It's not like to soothe the emotion. It's not to be controlled by the emotion, but rather to use it as if it feels unpleasant, then it's very likely that I'm intending something delusional. I'm intending maybe expediency or control or resistance or performance of some kind. So I'll use that as a signal to myself that there's something I need to do here. So one example, this is not specific to social media, but it certainly has happened with social media. The time where I noticed it, it was happening because I was going to bed and I still felt like a little bit wound up mentally. So I was physically tired, but mentally I was still pretty active. And I took my phone out to watch Netflix. And that's like a thing that I would just do before I went to bed. So I pulled my phone out and when I... We were growing up, you would sleep with a small DVD player I would. laptop next to the bed. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I always yeah, had this overactive mind. Yeah, this like background that was like, noise. Yeah, yeah, it's like my like pacifying behavior. So one thing that I, I did is the last time I did that, I stopped myself and I'm like, hold on a second. What is my intention here? What am I really doing? And I noticed that I was resisting like the feelings of anxiousness that I had myself. I was, and I was trying to be expedient into moving from that overactive mind into this kind of unconscious chill that get from Netflix. And I stopped myself and I said, okay, like before I watch Netflix, I didn't tell myself I'm not going to because I still need to deal with the emotion that has come up or that is lingering that I haven't dealt with or processed. So what I did is I said, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to get present to this feeling and see what it is. So I pulled out a note that I have um, where I basically journal and I just started writing out my thoughts and like asking myself questions, basically having a dialogue with myself and even using some of the intentions and delusions in that dialogue, but having this dialogue about what I was feeling, why I might be feeling it, what questions were running through my mind. And I wasn't too strict on the structure of this dialogue. It was just... I was writing the thoughts out as they came up. And in doing that and being present and observing what was going on in my mind, rather than trying to make it go away or quiet it down with Netflix, I, what I noticed is I got extremely tired within minutes of doing that. Like my mind actually rested because I got it out. So instead of using expediency in that moment, I embraced what I was feeling and then I use a sense of understanding of myself by hearing myself out in written form where I could get it out of my head and then having the discipline to like really sit there and pay attention to these emotions and what they were teaching me and do my best to learn from them. And in doing that, I didn't actually need to watch Netflix that night. I actually just fell asleep like minutes after I did that. So that's just like one example of at least if you find yourself doom scrolling and We've all had those moments where you're like, you start scrolling, you're like, why did I open this app? And what's crazy is you did that exercise for Netflix. I don't, I've had the opposite experience where, and maybe I'm just that much more wired slightly differently, mm. but for me, Netflix would be like the slowdown. It was the slowdown. It, like, it would slow me down, but it wouldn't deal with the problem. Why you feel hyperactive right. at 11 o'clock. Right. 11 o'clock. It was like this expedient slowdown versus like I a see. sincere slowdown. I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. What was the reason? I don't remember the exact context. Like I've done this many times now 
but you gotta stop drinking Red Bull. <laughs> I never drink Red Bull. You know that. I think it's gross. How dare you say that on air? <laughs> Sorry, Red Bull. I don't like your drink. <laughs> Shout out to Andrew Huberman. Fuck you, Red Bull. That's our stance. That, that's that's a hard stance that we take. Excellent. But yeah, it's so I use the same kind of thinking now when I find myself scrolling aimlessly through social media, like I'll ask myself, like I'll literally ask myself the question, what am I avoiding? What, what is bothering me that I'm avoiding? Because a lot of these thoughts and feelings are not necessarily from recent things. They're from thoughts that have been planted in my mind from maybe weeks, months, even years ago that have been watered with the emotional charge that I've given them. How do you resurge? Those thoughts. I know you mentioned you asked yourself some questions on structured. Can you like talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like my surface is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. I suspect that I need certain triggering things mm-hmm. to really dive deeper into what I'm thinking or feeling. I literally follow the randomness of my mind. If you ever read one of my journal entries, it jumps from topic to topic very like sporadically because it's the same way that the stream of thoughts goes through my mind. Like when I'm doing that, I'm not looking for a steering wheel in you're my not head. Being, you're not being performative where like when I journal, sometimes the ego, my ego plays a little bit of one day. This will be med- meditations. <laughs> <laughs> one day somebody will find this and then I will be the new Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> right. One day someone will find this and they'll see that when I eat eggs, it is a good day. So yeah, like there's a little bit of that at play, but it sounds like you've worked well at like, just like dissipating that and just fucking flowing. Yeah. At least the way that I think of it is I look at it as a process of observation, not a process of creation or a process of like steering where the focus goes as a coach and having done all the coaching sessions that I've done, I understand that questions will steer the focus. So I will sometimes ask questions from almost that coaching perspective of myself when I like hit a wall kind of thing in that journaling process. But for the most part, all I'm doing is I'm just following the stream where it's going and I'm just observing the thoughts of the stream. And by doing that and getting them out of my head and onto the note file that I have that I use craft, by the way, shout out to craft. We're not sponsored by them, but it is a dope app, but I, Uh Oh, the app, the docu. Okay. I thought you were talking about Kraft cheese. I was like, why are we shouting them out? My son loves Your son my loves son's the mac and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Kraft, if you want to sponsor my two-year-old son, he'd be your biggest advocate. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I know. He's, he, he gets pumped about that. But yeah, I, I pretty much, I use it as a process of observation and listening rather than a process of controlling where it's going or putting a focus, which... that is not a bad thing to do by any stretch. Like I think having a prompt or having an aim with your journaling can be really good depending on if you're trying to solve something specific. What I'm doing with this is I'm not trying to solve anything specific. I'm trying to observe my thoughts. So instead of trying to control the thoughts or control where the feelings are going, I'm taking the intention of understanding, but understanding myself by seeing where that dialogue goes. And again, this can be used whether it's you're about to watch Netflix, you're about to do a habit that you don't really think is good for you, you're, you find yourself aimlessly scrolling like this is something that you can do because a lot of what's triggering you to react 
in those moments when you see things on social media is not necessarily the thing itself, but maybe what you're bringing in terms of your the thoughts that exist in your head to that external stimulus. And the mixing of those two is what kind of creates your reaction. Almost yeah. exclusively, any surface habit is a symptom of some underlying thing. On yes. both positive and not positive ones. And for me, even knowing that, an exercise that I just had to get, I had to learn to get better at, mm-hmm. and I'm still learning to get better at, is in the in that moment, mm-hmm. recognizing what is happening. It takes to me an impressive level of awareness to consistently be able to identify you're about to embark on a habit you don't desire, mm-hmm. and then being able to see it in real time as it's about to happen, and then give yourself perspective enough perspective. You can choose to not do it. There's that that common advice of before you eat late, take Mm -hmm. a moment and think, are you actually just bored? Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It takes a lot of strength to take a moment and think and realize that that is an impressive thing that's worth celebrating. And like I've gotten better at doing that. I'm still not perfect. There are other ways that your brain can trick you to. It's not that I'm bored. It's that I have a guest or so it's not just Mm -hmm. even thinking about the singular like oh it's usually boredom so i always ask myself if i'm bored it's a little bit abstract what i found is for me is before i do any behavior that isn't what i think i should be doing in the moment or it's outside of like the thing that i'm supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. i just stop for 30 seconds i don't even ask myself i just stop for 30 seconds usually that allows my consciousness enough time to catch up to Mm -hmm. to what what i'm doing and then it'll like work itself out but it's almost like before you answer someone, just take a deep breath kind of thing. Yes. Like I just take a deep breath before I do anything. And that usually gives my brain time, catch up to my action. Yeah. That's a good point. The, cause that's the same as like the pause, like you're taking a pause and what, like I'd love to, to sit here and say, Oh, you get better at that through meditation. And meditation is one of the ways to do that. But I don't think I got better at that because of meditation. I think I got better at that because uh, honestly, for the most part, the conversations that you and I have in this kind of like consistent self-reflection that we do, and we will bounce those same, those ideas of self-reflection off of each other. It seems to be the content of the conversation most of the time. So that has been very helpful for me is like having those dialogues and really looking at, okay, why am I doing this? And meditation definitely helps, like especially mindfulness meditation is really good for this particular skill set. And doing mindfulness meditation can definitely translate because at least the way Dan Harris described it in his, like with his style of meditation, like on his app, 10% happier, what he talks about is like paying attention to the breath as you're going through the meditation. And then every time you start to veer off and start thinking thoughts, oh, what am I going to have for lunch? Should I get a haircut? The moment you realize that, wait, I'm supposed to be meditating, not diving into these thoughts, and then you bring your focus back to your breath, that's one. You know what? I start realizing that I'm realizing that I'm not. <laughs> like, it starts to become this, this like, mind, this, like, kind of mind fuck. But there are moments where I experience what you're talking, where it's, oh, minutes have gone by, mm. and I don't even realize it. That lack of realizing it means that you've been focusing on your breath for it. That's the rep time. That's why, for me, meditation has been less effective and Thinking about trying some other meditations out, Apple just launched a new meditation service, so I wanted to check that out. But breath work 
yes. is what gives me a similar sort of effect that you're describing. Where I'm just focusing on just my breath, the pacing of my breath, mm-hmm. where I'm filling my air, my lungs, my stomach, the cadence of that, all that, doing that thing I do like 10 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And that gives me the mental clarity. Yes. And it probably stimulates my nervous system in a way that charges me with energy in a way that helps me just like boom my day. Yeah. No, definitely. I like I enjoy doing breath work as well and I think it does something similar for me. It's just like paying attention to the sensation, to the feeling. Right. And also paying attention to when you get when your focus gets taken off of that sensation and that feeling. Because the way that a thought interrupts you is very similar to the way that anything in your external environment interrupts you. Like you might be working and really focused and then your dog starts barking or your son wants a snack or he like woke up from his nap kind of thing. It's like a lot of people, what I've noticed when I've talked to them about meditation, if they're just starting out is they think that they're bad at meditation because they're like, I can't sit there and focus on my breath. Like I just start thinking of so many different things. So you're supposed to, because that's how your brain works. And it's the coming back to that centered place that is the exercise. That's each rep that you do. So in essence, you're practicing coming back to your center despite being interrupted. And I think that's the real value. That's where the muscle gets built in that. Right. And I even I've even experienced now I'm not deep into the world of meditation. So if anything I say is like taboo in that space, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I like to do things me. I'm like I like understanding theory and uh, studying the people before us that have shared their wisdom, but I'm very rooted in like practicality. Yes. So like I'll veer away from convention if it's like effective, both short and long term. Mm-hmm. Usually trying to care more for the long term effects, but that's like where I fall on like that like spectrum. With that said, myself included, I find people that struggle with what you're saying with meditation. Maybe they just haven't done it ever or in a while, and that practice doesn't really appeal to them. I tell mm-hmm. people, you know, what works too is not doing that. Just even before you get to that step, just sit down for 10 minutes and let your brain just run creatively. Mm-hmm. Let it work through whatever it needs to work through. Right. Explore some of those thoughts. I don't know. Maybe that is a form of meditation. I'm not sure. I think eventually that you find yourself being, oh, I've cleared most of my thoughts out. Mm-hmm. What's next? And then you start getting into the more breath work um, and pulling yourself in. And that's where you can really push yourself further. But even initially, just like being still mm-hmm. and letting your brain work, even that is a huge improvement from the constant activity your brain. Because think about it. If your brain is working through all this stuff, but everything, other minute you're checking your phone and there's a new input mm-hmm. that's a new thing your brain is processing without having finished processing the before thing yeah and you're in this constant reactionary state mm-hmm. the stopping and just letting your brain sort itself you stop being reactionary for a period of time yes and you can start taking things to a conclusion so and that doesn't inv- that's not even talking about like the breath work or anything that's literally just like closing your eyes and thinking for a moment Mm-hmm. And just letting yourself think and process right. for a moment. Yeah, no, that's it's a good point because a lot of the time something that I've noticed is that you you don't remember most of the thoughts that you have and that you're like most of them are just streaming. I think the ones that you remember and the ones that cause you to exacerbate your feelings about the thought are those that 
are associated to some kind of an emotional charge that you have that maybe you haven't processed or dealt with something internal. I notice like the thoughts that you latch onto or like the feeling the need to grab onto a thought as it's streaming through your mind comes with whether or not it activates or stimulates some emotion that you have within that maybe hasn't been processed. So a lot of the time when you sit, if you do that exercise that you're talking about where you like sit there and think, I think it's also worth paying attention to what is the common theme of what you're latching onto. And I think that would be helpful because it would highlight like what emotions are still very active within you. But the other thing too, just to backtrack for a second, in Zen, one thing that's talked about is how meditation itself is not Zen. It is an exercise. It's a practice. But the practice itself is not Zen. It doesn't describe Zen. Zen is more like the direct experience that you'll have, maybe, when doing that practice. But that experience of total presence in this moment does not have to come through meditation. It could literally come from walking. It could come from doing something that you're passionate about. Shit, video games could be a meditative experience for some people. Oh, absolutely. I think what we're describing is if you can get into a flow-like state, even though flow maybe is usually attributed contextually within like productivity in terms of like you're you're having this effortless where you're not being drawn away, but you're achieving something you want to achieve. So I think that's where the category of flow comes in. But it the idea like applies across the board. When I lived in New York City, I would walk three to four miles almost every day in the city. And it would be... 30, 40 minute walk almost every day just from work to the the train I needed to particularly catch at that time. And which was even actually I could have took earlier trains, but I enjoyed that walk. But it always felt like a five minute walk to me. Yeah, it was like a very I was very flow. Like I didn't have any thoughts didn't have any distractions. I was moving at a certain pace and that pace never really let down. It was just like a straight shot there and it felt therapeutic. Yeah. It was a therapeutic experience. It was one of my favorite parts of living in New York is just like losing track of yourself just by walking in the city. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's a perfect example because even though you wouldn't sit in a lotus and meditate and do mantras and stuff, like you didn't necessarily need to do that to experience that exact same truth of direct experience that meditation is intended to point you towards. And the same thing goes for the intentions and delusions that we've developed. It's like the intentions of humanity are designed to point you back to that experience, but those intentions are not the experience itself. It's just if you intend in that direction, the likelihood that you're going to get into that Zen state, into that flow state, into that total presence goes up. Whereas if you're pointing yourself in the direction of delusion, you're pointing yourself away from that type of experience and you're you're starting to invest in grasping at your thoughts or the noise that's in your mind or the abstractions that you have about life or about people or even about yourself. And that's what happens when you're pointing in the direction of delusion. So really and truly the meditative state can be achieved really anywhere. If, if you're going into that state of flow, that state of presence, like your walk. Right. No, I agree. Um, where I found, so meditation doesn't necessarily call me towards it. And, and maybe it's because I've, experience the meditative state by going on my I still go on walks now 
um, going on my walks or just doing certain things that just bring me back to feel centered. Where I found meditation helpful is because it's not something I naturally gravitate towards. If I can find myself in a flow state by doing that breath work mm -hmm. meditation, it becomes more of a tool that I can point towards any activity. Like I enjoy walking, mm -hmm. so it almost feels effortless to get into that meditative state. I don't enjoy doing other activities. It's harder to find that flow in those activities. Mm -hmm. The act of meditation is just, to me, the ability to learn to get into a zone even if it's an activity that I don't particularly find comfort in. I think for people that may look like work, it yeah. may look like exercise, it may look like really, like, I guess it could be almost any activity, right? Mm -hmm. We're always exposing ourselves to things that we may not prefer be doing in a moment, but we want to do. And being present in that is one of the best ways of getting through or having the best result in that activity. Yeah, 100% agreed. And I think the thing that would keep you from being present is the resistance to what is, both internal and external. And specifically in this example, I'm talking internal. If you're resisting emotions that are coming up, then it will prevent you from being present. In the resistance of emotions of things that you're feeling, if you're trying to hide your feeling, if you're trying to numb your feeling away, if you're trying to express your feeling thinking that you're throwing it out kind of thing, these are all forms of resistance, and I think in re in resisting the feelings that you have about something, that is what will prevent you from being present. So if you're about to go do something that you don't like, it's maybe a good idea or a good exercise to explore what don't you like about it, what does it make you feel, what are the emotions that come up, and what do they mean to you? What are they trying to tell you about this thing that you don't like? Because it might not even be the thing. It might be a perception you have about the thing, an opinion you have about the thing that you quote-unquote don't like whether it's like work or exercise or doing things that are good for you, like reading and writing and all that kind of stuff. So I think having a way of clearing the emotions and a way of understanding them, observing them, and understanding the message that they're trying to give you can be particularly helpful. And that's like the type of thing, like you and I were talking earlier about the Zen Stoic Liberation Session, the thing that I do with one-on-one -on -one clients. And that's the whole point of something like that is to figure out where the root cause of this emotion is and what a person needs to learn from that specific emotion in their life in order to release it so that it doesn't get in the way of them being present in everyday activities, whether that's conversations with people, their work, or even the things, their hobbies and stuff like that. So being able to get in touch with those, I think, is a really important thing. I'm curious, Lewis, like for you, when you have certain like unpleasant emotions come up, what do you do about it? Yeah, that's a great question. My natural and uh, less desired, so I'll, I'll speak to both, mm -hmm. and contextually, either or could happen as my like reaction, but starting with undesired is in a moment of high stress, usually where a decision has to be made and it's like a high energy moment. My, my reaction is my language becomes a little bit terser mm -hmm. and I could come off more agitated and I can be a little bit frustrated. Mm -hmm. I think that probably stems from like the elevated level of anxiety of the moment and the urgency of, of the moment or the frustration from a clear breakage of communication. 
between me and someone else, despite like my effort and trying to maintain clear communication. Mm -hmm. So that's like my undesired response. What I've learned to do over time to address that undesired response and to just feel better in working through those moments is, is first an acknowledgement and an acceptance of how I'm feeling. I think for a long time I would tell myself things like, oh, I'm not angry about this. I need to reframe it so that I'm, if someone punches you, you're like, I'm grateful for this lesson. Like kind of thing where (laughs) I was trying to play that game, trying to convince myself that something bad is secretly something good. You're being performative Um, to yourself. (laughs) And that wasn't right. That doesn't really work, right? Yes. Like from a practical perspective, you can make it sound good, but you're not actually like getting better. Yes. That didn't work. So for me, it was an acknowledgement that those emotions, that anxiety or whatever I'm feeling, is valid and I'm currently experiencing them. Mm. Once I was able to acknowledge that, it was easier for me to then also tell myself and they will go away. Mm. And it's okay for it to go away. I can't go to the go. You can't accept that emotion will is fleeting and it'll pass if you don't you can't even accept that you're having it. So that was the precursor to then allow me to just let it continue through its course. Then there was an acknowledgement in my end of how I feel doesn't equal how I communicate. Mm. So I was able to accept that's that actually that, really good. That I was able to accept that I was feeling that way, mm-hmm. and that acknowledgement, that conscious realization, allowed me to reframe from using language or bringing myself to react in a way that isn't desirable. So what that maybe looks like today, fiance does something bothers me, I'm able to say, hey, I'm able instead of reacting in a way that can create tension in my relationship. I'm able to first acknowledge and express, hey, that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable or that makes me unhappy. And because it's now conscious, I can then express why I feel that way, mm-hmm. which is much healthier than just like lashing out. All this sometimes doesn't happen instantaneously in terms of like in the moment. So another thing that I do is, and at first I, it used to be something that, would make the people close to me chuckle at because it's kind of silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, I just kind of got over that. And now it's not even a big deal. And now I'm, I'm even able to communicate it in a way that like no one even bats an eye at. Mm-hmm. Um, it just came out awkward initially. But the what that thing is, I would just also tell people, hey, I'm feeling a little bit emotionally charged right now. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to take a minute to think through how I want to tell you how I think about this thing. Mm. And at first it was just kind of like, that's weird. Someone saying that I'm emotional. Like, it's a weird, people don't yeah. really say that. I learned to get over it. And I also learned to uh, like deliver that in a way that like is more, is like more socially clever without it sounding like weird. Okay. What's going on? Is this a bigger deal than I thought it was? But even by saying that I'm just giving myself the two or three minutes that I need mm. to work through what I just said and then reframe what my reaction, like the reaction may not be invalid, but the delivery of it, can be invalid. So it just gives right. me the could time. could be disproportionate to what's actually going on, which is typically what happens right. when somebody has an emotional reaction. And then like in terms of outside of that, what also allowed me to get to that place mm-hmm. is having perspective and framing. So like in terms of perspective, it's realizing what do I actually want out of that? And does the outlash, is it feeding something else that's not actually the outcome that I want? Almost mm-hmm. always it's yes. If I'm feeling rushed to make a decision and I have uncertainty on what decision to make and I lash out and be like, 
oh, what the hell is going on? That feeds the need to like make someone else feel bad because I feel bad versus the need of can we get to the answer that we both want to mm. the, the thing that's in front of us? Right. right. So it's like you in that moment that gets muddled. So reflecting and having perspective made me realize it's worth taking the step back and doing all that because it allows me to get to the outcome that actually matters and not feed into the one that's just feeding a part of me. I don't want to grow out or come out or be like the version of myself that that shorter, more like spiteful in the moment version is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a great breakdown of how you deal with your emotions in those situations, especially when dealing with other people. And even like to put into Zen Stoic terms, there's so much there that is very intentional and that points you back to yourself and back to humanity. And like the, to start with, if you like just expressing like a, that, that makes me feel emotionally charged. That's a sincere expression that is not expedient An expedient, sincere expression. Like one way that you could sour your own sincerity is by having that like lashing out. Right. I want to, I want these words to sting. I want the tone of my voice to hurt. Because someone, and I've heard this before, but I genuinely do feel angry. So why can't I just be angry? Yeah. Yeah, that's sincere, but you're you're being expedient about that, and that's not going to net you the result that you're looking for. Right. You're also resisting the... the human that you're communicating with in front of you, like you're resisting that, that nature. So what's interesting about the way you do it is like, it's sincere. It's disciplined in the sense that you're thinking about, you didn't say this, but what you're like putting in there is that the meaning that we create from this interaction is more important than the instant gratification of me dunking on you. And that is is a way of communicating that allows you to be more present but also allows you to solve the problem. You're not resisting your own anger. You're embracing it. You're being sincere about the expression of it. You're doing your best to understand yourself by taking a couple minutes and you're being disciplined in the in how you're doing it because you understand that there is a higher meaning that can be attained than just lashing out. Yeah, that makes... I think that is a good breakdown of what's happening under the hood there. Yeah. If we're talking about it from, from that philosophical perspective, like that's the difference in communicating with intentions versus communicating with delusions. And I, what I've learned is it, you don't have to get caught up in a social moment so much so that you sacrifice intentionality. Like almost exclusively any experience where I felt like I was losing sight of what I wanted out of a moment and I took a step back, reassessed, and then continued the conversation has almost always netted to a better outcome of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So like that, there's like a, maybe a stigma or there's like a perception that because conversations can be real time, mm-hmm. that they're hard and it is hard, but just, I like saying it like, it's okay in that moment to say, I need a moment yeah, before I move forward. Absolutely. Most people are totally under understanding of that. Yeah. And being able to express that you need a moment. is not easy. I'll, no, I'll be the it, first to admit it's that. It's difficult. But I look at like whenever I'm sharing with a client or even like anybody that I'm talking about Zen Stoicism with how to strengthen your sincerity or how to increase your level of self uh, of trusting yourself. It comes with 
I, I notice it's not a cognitive or it's not like an intellectual process where you're saying, okay, I'm going to trust myself now. Like that doesn't quite work. Trusting yourself, the strength of that or how much you trust yourself, the degree to which you do comes with repeated expressions of sincerity and saying the thing that you feel that is difficult, but it is true to you is one of those expressions of sincerity. So even saying I need a moment, that is a difficult experience. It's a vulnerable experience, but I imagine the more that you've done it, the more comfortable you've become with it and the more in touch with yourself that you feel in these interactions. Yeah. 110%. I think that's also a good stopping point for today. Yeah, I think so too. I was feeling the same way. <laughs> Perfect. We're we're in sync. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So yeah, Lewis and I we're continuing to to work on the community and the, the meditations and having these dialogues, having these discussions. I think we decided that we're gonna make this it both an Android and iOS app for the meditations program. Yes. How that'll look and feel. Like maybe it's an entry point to all of our products that you can play with. Maybe it's just a standalone, like we're ironing that out. We're not going to limit it to just a web application. You'll be able to install it and use it. And we want to set it up as such where the app won't distract you. We don't believe in like doing like ads and stuff like that Mm -hmm. in the actual application. We wanted to achieve the goal of the app. Yes, which that's just, that is a hilarious thing to have. Happens, meditation app. It happens all the time. I'll oh, use, I know. I'll use a meditation app. Five, it's just so ironic. Five in the morning. Five in the morning. I'm trying to like get to it, and it'll tell me about why I should do Taco Bell has breakfast now. I'm like, I do not. This is not helping me right now. Exactly. So we we're welcoming suggestions, welcoming feedback, and uh, looking forward to hearing from you in how we build this community based on the interaction that we have with the the users and the people who listen to the Zen Stoic and, path. And, and we want to do clips. We want to take these episodes and, and do clips that are a little bit more uh, digestible. Yeah, so we'll be working on that. So, yeah, if you have any questions, send them to info at zenstoic.com. Lewis and I are happy to answer them or cover them on an episode. Um, until then, we look forward to seeing you on the next one. 